Well, today, as Matt said, we're continuing with our series of messages that we're calling The Hope of Heaven and in which we're looking at John's vision of the new heavens and of the new earth that we find in Revelation 21 and then the first five verses of chapter 22. And I want you to understand as we enter into this study this morning that this is the climax of the Bible. Okay, so all of Scripture is moving toward this vision, toward this moment, toward this day, toward this that we're going to look at. But not just all of Scripture, but also all of history, wittingly or unwittingly, intentionally or unintentionally, knowingly or unknowingly, purposefully or seemingly without any purpose at all, everyone and everything that has ever existed or will yet exist is moving toward this vision. New heavens, new earth, but really primarily, new city. What John is going to talk to us the most about is a new city, a city that you and I will either find ourselves forever and entirely inside of or forever and entirely outside of, depending upon our relationship with Christ. Why? Because it's the city of Jesus. It's the city, as he calls it, of the Lamb. It's the city of God, guys. And it is a city, by the way, that is to be understood in contrast to the city of man, to this city that we live in. And I don't just mean Fort Lauderdale. I mean this life. I mean this world. And we know that it's to be understood in contrast to this because time and again describing the beauties of the city of God, John is going to reach down into our lives, into our existence, into our city, quote-unquote, if you will, and item by item, he's going to point out things that cause us suffering, that cause us despair, that cause us to cry, that cause us grief. And he's going to say in so many words, do you see that? Take a good look at that because that's not going to be in the new city. And then if if that's not enough, he's going to come back and go, okay, how about this one over here? Have you seen this? Some of you are acquainted with this one. Okay, well, that's great. Take a good look at it. Kiss it goodbye. It's not going to be here in the new city. And that's not going to be here. And that's not going to be here. And that's not going to be here. It's like, hey, it's open mic day. Call out something that's just ripping your guts out or has in the past or maybe will yet in the future and understand it's not going to be in the new city. It's like he goes into our life, into our world, into our city, and he calls out all of the crud and piles it up like so much manure in the middle of the room and says, all right, gather around it, see it, smell it, hear it, taste and touch it for the last time because it does not exist in the new city. See, the new city is beautiful not merely for what it contains. It's beautiful for what it doesn't contain. I think to understand and really to appropriately look at the new city, at the city of God, we've got to think at least for a couple of minutes, don't we, about the city of man? I know you spend a lot of time thinking about it already, but let's think about it for a second, okay? The founding of the first city of man is found in Genesis chapter 4. And that city becomes emblematic. It becomes a model for, if you will, every single city of man that has ever been founded ever since, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible and both in the way that it's founded, parenthetically, and also in its character and its nature. The cities of men, guys, are founded in rebellion against an established authority. It's founded, at least from somebody's perspective, in a crime. And what is its character? Its character is strife. It is a striving. It's not a striving for the benefit of one another. It's not a striving to help make other people's lives better. It's not a striving that we might, you know, really just kind of come around one another and, yeah, It's a striving against one another. The city of man is a reflection of the soul of man, and the soul of man, if we can just be honest just for a minute, and I will tell you, I am exhibit A, okay, is fundamentally selfish. 
It's a striving to better ourselves, to advance our positions, oftentimes at the expense of others. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain founds the first city after murdering his brother Abel. You may be familiar with that story. God comes to him and in judgment sends him out. Says, go, you're on your own. He sends him, in a sense, out from the presence of God, and he goes out, it says, into the land of Nod, you know, and you're like, what's the point of that? I mean, who really cares what the... Well, I care, I mean, because the land of Nod, the word Nod means literally wandering. He sends him forth to wander alone, away from God, apart from God, and what is the first thing he does? He founds a city, names it after his son Enoch. So what then does the city of man, this city, which is emblematic of every city, represent? Because it certainly isn't community with God, is it? No. It's community without God. It is, in some sense, a God substitute. And if you think about it logically, you can completely understand this. I mean, if there is no God, if we deny the existence of God, or if we're rejected by God, or if we reject God, we're kind of left to wander on our own, aren't we? And it's sort of scary out there. I mean, if something happens, who's going to look out for us? If there's an emergency, I mean, if we get sick or old, who's going to care for us? There are all kinds of issues and vulnerabilities all of a sudden that we experience, and so man becomes this urban creature because what we do is we gather together and socialize our risk, and we create all of these social institutions. We have hospitals, and we have, you know, welfare, and we, have, we create an economy so that we can gather up enough wealth from one another to sustain ourselves, to protect ourselves, to take care of ourselves. The city of man is founded in rebellion. Its character, its fundamental nature is our fundamental nature. It's a selfishness that manifests itself in a striving. And in strife, Cain finds that first city of man, he founds it in murder. And it becomes emblematic of all these other cities in the Bible and all these other cities in history. I mean, think about sort of the eternal cities of man, if you will. Rome, Athens, Sparta. How were they founded? Do you know the stories? Rome was founded by two brothers, Romulus and Remus, who fought it out over the size of the city and over the name of the city. And how did they settle their dispute? Because it sounds a little like Cain and Abel. Romulus kills Remus, murders his brother, names it after himself. That took care of that. Settled, done. It's founded in murder. And read the history books. Strife. You see? What about Athens? Athens is founded by Theseus. Theseus is returning from war, right? He's been fighting the Minotaur, and his dad, King Aegeus, is looking for the sign of his safety. Is his son going to return alive, or is he returning in a box? Is he returning alive, or is he coming back dead? Was he victorious, or was he defeated? And there's a sign that his son knew he should give and didn't. And what did King Aegeus do? In despair, thinking his son is dead, he casts himself into the sea, the Aegean Sea. It's named after him. His son founds Athens in the death of his own father. There's strife. What about Sparta, founded by Lycurgus, who secretly murders his king? to do it, and on and on and on it goes. What about our country? little different story, but it is founded in rebellion to an established authority. Now, the established authority was a tyrant, and it's justifiable, and we can all argue about that. Maybe England would have their own kind of position on that, but, but it is founded in revolution. From their perspective, well, a crime. 
from our perspective, justified, and it's founded in blood that we call precious because it is precious. It purchased for us this blessed city. But the founding is there, isn't it? And what is our nature? As great of a country as we are, and in my opinion, we're the greatest country that has ever existed, what is our nature? Think about it this way with me for a minute. We have the FBI, the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security. We have NCIS. I didn't even know that until the television show came out. And I dig the show. It's a great show. We have state and local police departments. Oh, by the way, every state has its own FBI and CIA. And, you know, I mean, it's like the laundry list of law enforcement agencies and the amount of money that we spend on them are staggering to say nothing about all of the prisons that litter our land. And, of course, we have all this because we get along so well. We're striving for one another's benefits, preferring the other above ourselves. We have a massive Legal justice system, it's huge, state and federal, huge, and it's completely clogged. Why? Because we get along so well. You know, we don't have any disputes. We never try to take advantage of us. Nobody ever tries to take advantage of us. We don't take advantage of other people. I mean, come on. Think about it. We have hotly contested elections at every single level of our government. Why is that? I mean, we all have a common vision for this city of man called the United States of America, don't we? No. We are divided philosophically. We are divided economically. We are divided morally and ethically. We are divided religiously. We are a factious group. We've got this little group over here who believes this, and this little group over here who believes this, and this little group over here who believes this, and this little group over here who believes this, and this little group over here who believes this, and we're all trying to get as much money as we can so we can outspend and outbuy the other guys, and we're all trying to outshout one another. There is absolutely no consensus on the vision for this city of man called the United States of America, and here's the deal. This is the greatest city of man that has ever been. I am unbelievably thankful for her. It is simply put, I think, the best that man can do, but that is exactly my point. John comes to us and he says, look, not so in the city of God, guys. And he starts calling out of our existence all of the crud, you see? piling it up like so much manure and saying, look look at it, take a good look at it, one last look at it, understand it will be gone. It will not be present. Not in the city of God, not in the city of God that reflects the character of the soul of Jesus. Not of me and not of you. John says this in Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven, keyword new, and a new earth. And by that little phrase, by the way, he's comprehending absolutely everything. He's gathering up every galaxy, every star, everything, all the dust, the whole deal, the whole universe. He gathers it all up and says, Hey, when I saw this, all new. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the little word new there is hugely important if you're going to understand how amazingly awesome the new heaven and new earth really is because it's not a word of time. It's a word of deliverance. It's a word of redemption. John is not saying, and God took the present heavens and earth that we presently live in, and he brought it down, you know, to the nearest universe dealership, and he traded it in on the latest, greatest model, you know, and off went the present heavens and earth because now they're the old heavens and earth, and they all went off to the junkyard to rot away and die somewhere. 
and he rolled out the brand new universe that is completely distinct and totally unattached from the previous one. And they had a great big ribbon-cutting ceremony and the whole thing. I mean, you know, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that he has delivered the present heavens and earth, that he has redeemed the present heavens and earth, that he is making new the present heavens and earth. It's a far more glorious vision. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at 2 Peter 3, and he laid out this chronology, you know, the first world which passed away in water was cleansed, remember? The flood of Noah. But out of that same world came this world, which will pass away. It will be cleansed in fire. And out of this same world will come the next world, made new. Paul teaches us in Romans that all of creation is groaning. It is longing to be made new. What John is saying is that God is going to do for the present heavens and earth what God in Christ Jesus does for me and for you. His plan for us is not to take us down to the people dealership and trade us in on some new race of people, some new model that's going to fill his new heavens and new earth and we'll rot away in some junkyard somewhere. No, 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 no. It's to make us new. And do you know why He makes us new as opposed to just disposing of us? Because His desire is that forever and ever and ever we will worship and serve Him, not merely as our Creator, but we will worship and serve Him as our Redeemer, as our Deliverer, as the one who so loved us that at the expense of the life of His own Son, He purchased us redeemed us, and made us forever new. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth passed away. And then he says something a little disconcerting to us until we understand it. He says, and the sea was no more. If you're in the boating business, you know, I mean, that's a bummer. But, but that's not anything like what he's actually saying. This is poetry. John is not saying that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no oceans or seas, so relax, okay? What he's saying is that in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be none of what the oceans and seas represent poetically. What do the oceans and seas represent in the Bible? Again, if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, you open its first few pages. The opening act of Scripture, you know, the, 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 the stage curtains open and you see the world and it's dark and it's empty and it's covered with waters of chaos, It represents chaos. And in that first creation, the God who alone can tame chaos, by the way, he's telling us a little something about what's going to come in the end, isn't he? The God who alone can tame tame chaos does exactly that. He brings forth the dry land. He fills that which is empty. He tames and controls that which is crazy and chaotic. And then you go a few chapters further into the Bible. You get to Genesis chapter 7, and the world is wiped out with water. It represents judgment. It represents death. You get a little bit further in the Bible and you realize, you know, the people of Israel are not exactly a seafaring people. Unlike their enemies, they have no mastery over over the sea, and yet they're on the Mediterranean. And they're subject to attack. The sea or the oceans are threatening to the people of God. Do you understand? You go a little bit further and you find examples like Elijah 
where he has the great battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you remember? And he prayed and it hadn't rained for years and then he prays and he sends his servant, go look for the rain. And which direction does he look? You can actually see the Mediterranean from the top of Mount Carmel. If you go, you'll stand there. He sees the cloud coming off of the sea. Storms come from the sea. What else do the seas do? Take a look at your globe. Divides the land masses, doesn't it? It separates us as nations. It separates us as people. John sees the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, and through his poetry, he's saying to you, look, it's a place without any chaos. It's a place without any judgment. It's a place without any death. It's a place where nobody has to be afraid because nobody has an enemy and there's no fear of attack. It's a place that is immune from the turbulence, from the threatenings of this life, and from everything that divides us as humanity in the new heavens and in the new earth, though we will be diverse, every language, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every color, every different flavor and stripe of humanity, we will be one. There will be no more striving against each other. There will be instead striving for each other. It's amazing. See, what makes the new heavens and the new earth so beautiful is not just what it does contain, but what it doesn't. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then here it is, and I saw the holy city. He doesn't say, and then I saw the city. He says, I saw the holy city, the sanctified city, the set-apart city. He is jumping up and down and screaming, Guys, this is a different kind of city. The cities of man are profane. This city is holy. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, you see, bearing the character of heaven itself, like Christ himself who came before her. It's coming down out of heaven from God. And then what I love is that his initial focus on this new city is not on the bricks and mortar. He doesn't like blast into and the walls were like and the streets were like. and the... It's on its people. His focus is on you. He speaks of the bride, which everywhere in the New Testament is metaphorical for us. He says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, keyword, prepared as a bride for her husband. And the husband is Jesus. And, you know, you can't rush past that. I mean, when you come to a verse like that, you can't go, well, that's kind of cool. And what's the next verse say? You know, it, you got to stop. Think about the implications of that. I mean, think about what John is saying about you, about me, about us. John is saying, look, in that day, you and I will be so adorned with grace and glory. We will be so radically transformed, redeemed, delivered, and made new that it will be manifest, it will be clear, it will be undeniable to all of heaven and earth that when we are forever joined with the Son of glory, well, that we're a worthy companion for Him. Jesus Christ will not be unequally yoked when He is joined together with you. That's a stunning thought. Paul says this, 
In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, he says, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And I think that at times we just need to confess that our imagination just isn't big enough. There are so many things in this life that God calls us by His Word to imagine. And then there are points where we reach the end of our imagination. And we just know that it's going to be so amazing that what it ought to do is cause us great anticipation. It's like when you're a kid and it's Christmas, man, and the, you know, the presents are under the trees, and you know what 93 of the 95 of them are, don't you? I mean, you asked for them, you made the list, you were very clear. You've shaken them, you've felt them, you've rewrapped a few of them. But then there's that one that defies your imagination, That's the one you want to open, isn't it? That's what this should do to your heart. He says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, okay? Prepared as a bride for her husband. And again, if you're a guy, you just got to get past the whole physical sexual aspect of this. That's not in view here. It's not in play. He's speaking of an intimate, binding relationship that will be ours with Christ forever and ever. It will be whole. It will be perfect. It will be uninterrupted by anything, anyone, and certainly uninterrupted by sin. And that interrupts our relationship with him all the time. That's why we started this service with a confession of sin. That should be a regular part of the rhythm of our lives. But there? Well, see, that's one of the things John would say. You see that? See, that's not going to be there either. I don't know if you've thought about this, but our God is infinite. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no lack of Him to go around. And so when you get to heaven, okay, you're not going to have to take a number, you know, to have some time with Him like you do at the Publix Deli. It's not going to be that way. He's not going to have this great appointment secretary with like this massive ginormous computer and, you know, she thinks she can maybe get you in in like 3,486,000 in three years on Friday the 28th of May at four o'clock for two and a half seconds. He's infinite. He is going to be all yours, all of the time, forever. It's amazing. And it's the presence of God, too, that John then emphasizes right here on the front end of the vision. Again, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying what? It's a loud voice. It's a voice of celebration saying, behold, the dwelling place. No, that's not what it says, and it irritates me that they translate it that way, quite frankly. It says the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and and God himself will be with them as their God. What's so interesting is that John uses that same tabernacling language to speak of Christ in the first chapter of his gospel, the gospel of John where he tells us that the Word of God, the the, the Son of God, became flesh, and in the tabernacle of His flesh, He tabernacled among us. A tabernacle is mobile. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the tent of God, out in the middle of the wilderness with the people of God, in the midst of their wanderings. Wandering is an interesting theme in the Bible. It's an interesting theme in our lives. 
But God so ordained that they would wander with him in the midst, if you will. And when they camped, he had all 12 tribes and camped about him. It's like Jesus who comes. And again, tabernacles among us and the tabernacle of his flesh with his 12 disciples ever around him. John is grabbing hold of all of these very powerful, intimate images portraying the presence of God with his people. And he says, I heard a loud voice. This is the voice of the Lord who's celebrating his presence with you. God's not saying, oh man, I guess I got to spend some time today with these guys. Scriptures say that he say, teach that he sings over you, rejoices over you. I heard a loud voice from the throne because this is the day saying, behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. Look at how off, uh, how many times he says this. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God ever in our midst, ever available. And what will he do? It's the first thing that he'll do. It says he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Now, it's a little bit of an odd statement when you realize that in a second he's going to tell us that there will be no crying in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new city. And so obviously he's not talking about tears that we're going to shed there. He's talking about the tears that we shed here, this life, this earth, this city. David says this in Psalm 56 verse 8, he said, you have kept count of my tossings. Actually, the Hebrew says, you have kept count of my wanderings. See, we wander, yet the Lord knows His. He does not lose track of us. You've kept count of my wanderings, David says. And then he says this, he says, you put my tears in your bottle, like he's storing them up. And then he says rhetorically, Are they not in your book? He's saying, God, you keep a perfect record of every tear that I cry in this city, in this life. Why? So that in the new city, with the tenderness of a father, he can sit down and wipe every single one of them with all of the sorrow, all of the grief, all of the despair, all of the issues, all of the trials, all of the problems that every single one of them have represented forever away. But how does he do that? I think he will do that by making them new, by redeeming them, or really by revealing to us in that day the redemption and the glory that he has worked through every single tear. You know, one of the mysteries of the Bible, one of these areas that God calls us to an imagination of faith comes to the difficult things or deals with the difficult things that we deal with here in this life. You know, God comes to us through the Apostle Paul and he says, listen, everything that happens to you in life, God works together for good. He's like, just gather it all up, pile it up in the middle of your life, you know, like so much manure, and understand that God takes that manure and uses it as fertilizer, and from it, he brings forth things that are precious things that are glorious, and things that are good. In fact, they're so good, they justify the presence of the manure. It's remarkable. 
And we're all cool with that, you know, when everything's going well and the tears aren't falling. But when things fall apart and the tears start falling, it's like, ah. And yet we're called to this understanding. It's interesting, you know, in the middle of the difficult things in life, God doesn't rush to our aid with the answers. Did you notice that? Pretty unusual when that happens. It's like, oh, no, 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 don't concern yourself. Here, wait a minute. All right, Tom, and it's just going to peel back the pages of heaven, and I'm going to show you the great redemption that I'm going to work through this, you know, situation in your life that you have absolutely no comprehension or understanding of because you see it from your itty-bitty view here on planet Earth, and you don't see it from my great, big, expansive, eternal view way up here in heaven. So I'm going to reveal to you the great glory that this is working in your heart and in your life and all of the reasons why I'm going to answer all of your why. He doesn't do any of those things. He calls us to believe that somehow in the economy of God, it's going to be good. In fact, it is good. And then he gives us this vision of this place where this stuff will no longer be and of a place where with the tenderness of a father, he will sit down with us and pull out his bottle of tears and say, all right, let's talk about this one. Let me wipe that away. Let me show you what I did with that tear. Let me give you the great glory that has come from that tear. Okay, how about this one? How about this one? That's the vision. That, it seems to me, is heaven. Not a bad place to be. You know, the Apostle Paul, who himself had a vision of heaven, spoke of the afflictions of this life, of his life, of our lives. And he speaks in a way that, quite frankly, is almost insulting until you understand him a little better. But again, he's seen seen heaven and he says, so we do not lose heart, which by the way, is the purpose of this vision that we're looking at in Revelation. In large part, that's why we have it. It's to encourage me. It's to encourage you. It is to infuse into our hearts a hope of a place where this stuff will be no more and where this stuff will make sense and will inure to our good, to our benefit, to our glory. He's writing to people who are suffering profoundly. And in his book, he tells them that there's a whole lot more coming. And then he gives you that vision to sustain you. Not that you might move through the difficulties of life by gritting your teeth and somehow just getting through it, but that you might move through the difficult things. Yes, in tears, but in joy too. Paul says this, we do not lose heart, though our outer self, our physical body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, and then here comes the insult until you understand this man. He says, for this light, momentary affliction, and that's where he loses most people, because immediately you assume that this guy cannot relate to you, because what you're experiencing in life isn't light, and it's not momentary. It's like it's never going to end. It feels like it's been going on forever. And it's unbearably heavy. But have you heard of the afflictions of Paul? We don't know them all, but we know what he tells us. And what he tells us is pretty stunning. He says this in the very same book, seven chapters later, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, says, are they servants of Christ? He's disputing with people who are questioning him and his service to Christ. So he's going to start laying stuff out like, okay, they think they're servants of Jesus. Well, try this on for size. 
Are they servants of Christ? He says, I am a better one. He says, I'm talking like a madman. I can't believe I'm having to say this. But I'll say it. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. That's a plural word, by the way. With countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Do you know why they did 39 and not 40? Because these people were so terrifyingly precise with their torture. They knew that if they shredded you 40 times, more often than not, you died. And they just wanted to bring you to the brink. Five times. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and if you know the story, he was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He calls all of these opposites together, all of these different ends of different spectrums. And he's saying, look, all of the time I'm in danger. Everywhere I go, And from virtually everyone I come into contact with. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all of the churches. This man knew what it was to suffer. When Jesus calls this man in Acts chapter 9 into a relationship with him and he's explaining the ministry that Paul will have to this other guy named Ananias, what does Jesus say? I will show Paul what a great time that he's going to have. And He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's that man who says, look, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self, our bodies are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Because I've seen heaven, guys, and I'm telling you, it's light, it's momentary, and it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying, look, it feels heavy right here and right now, but compared to the glory that God is going to lavish upon us for it. It's light. Feels like it's going to go on forever, but in light of eternity, it's momentary. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, these heavens, this earth, and this city. Where is your focus? Those who endure focus on a different city, on a different place, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new city for the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. John says this. He says, and I heard a loud voice because this is the voice of God and it is a day of his rejoicing and of my rejoicing and of yours saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and then listen to the things that will not be present because it makes the new city beautiful. He says, and death shall be no more. That's about half the big pile of manure right there, isn't it? Death shall be no more. 
There will be no graveyards in the new heavens and in the new earth. There will be no funeral home. So if that is your business, you're out of luck. Go into the boat business. Death brings a lot into our lives. It's gone. It's done. The God who has no beginning and no end decrees an end for death. He says, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, when somebody dies, uh, we speak of them having passed away. It's a softer way of saying it, and it's an appropriate way of saying it. And God is saying, there's a day coming when death itself will pass away. It will be no more. And the rest of this stuff as well. It will not afflict us. It will not plague us. These things will no longer concern us. And we will no longer fret and cry and wonder why. All our whys will be answered. And all of our sorrows will be wiped away and replaced with glory. It's not a bad gig if you can get it. And it's yours through faith in Jesus. John continues, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm redeeming everything. And also he said, and I love this because it's kind of like he knows our hearts. He knows we'll hear the vision, we'll see the vision, we'll talk about the vision, and some of us will walk away kind of maybe quietly going, that's ah, a little too good to be true, you know? Because life in the city of man has taught us to be skeptical. So he says, look, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again from the dead. That your sins might be forgiven and that eternal life might be yours because you're a really good person. No. Because you deserve it. No. Because you're beautiful on, on your own. No because God gives you the faith to ask for it. That's it. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's free. The one who conquers, the one who proves by enduring and persevering in hope to the end that their faith is real, will have this heritage, and here it is, I will be his God, and he will be my son, or she will be my daughter. Think about that. Dwell on that and let that change you because that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to capture your heart and your mind and your life and infuse you in the here and now in the city of man with the hope of a city that is never going to pass away and that doesn't have all that stuff. What city are you living for? What city are you looking towards? What city is your life focused on? I pray that it's the city of God, for that is the city that will remain forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that with the precious blood of your Son you have purchased. With the life of your Son you have founded a city. 
Not a life taken, but one given. Not a city founded in crime, but in grace. And Lord, I pray that you would inspire within us the hope that this city ought to inspire within us. I pray that you would capture us as we study and look into it, that you would take us captive with this vision, that you would liberate us from so much of the stuff that we deal with here in the city of man and so much of the importance that we place upon it, that you would reprioritize our perspective in our lives. And that as a result, you will bring great glory to your Son through us as we begin to live as people who are living as citizens of a different place, of a different world, with a different ethic, with a different economy. Thank you, Lord, for the great vision that you've given us and for the hope that is ours through faith in your Son. I pray that you would give us great faith, God. And we thank you in his name. Amen.